this is a huge shift for Germany. I think that it, it, you know, at the heart of this is Merkel realizing that it's not in Germany's best interest to have this long and protracted crisis in the rest of Europe. Megan Green is a leading economist on both sides of the Atlantic. She captured great attention and praise in 2008 when she correctly predicted the Greek government bailout since she's advised the British Parliament on Brexit, in addition to governments and central banks of the US, Europe and Japan. She's a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and you can regularly spot her on the pages of the Financial Times where she's a columnist or on BBC and Bloomberg. Inflation will look better through roughly July and then it won't be sustained. Um, but I think more importantly... On today's episode, she sits down with us to talk about the European recovery deal that took more than 90 hours of negotiations and why people are calling it historic. A brand nuclear deal. It could be a whole host of things. And I think that might be creeping into it as well. I am Zoya Soroy and this is The Dive, where we bring Harvard experts to break down what's behind the most pressing headlines. Is it recording yet? It's recording. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us on The Dive. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. This is our first European-focused topic, so very excited to have you on. This is uh, an unusual time because usually uh, as we enter August, things wind down on the political forefront, but not now, um, at least not in Europe. The European Union has unveiled stimulus worth 750 billion euros to help cope with the economic fallout from the coronavirus. Days ago, uh, the EU has passed uh, what is dubbed as a historic 750 billion euro stimulus package to revamp the economy. Um, give us more context around the issue. What kind of economic crisis is Europe suffering right now due to COVID? And where can one see it and feel it the most? Yeah, so the coronavirus hit Europe really hard before it even hit the US. And Italy was the initial epicenter. But of course, it then spread on to Spain, for example, which was also hit really hard. Um, and everyone is hit by the same thing. But actually, the implications for different countries in Europe have been very different, um, in large part because of how we've responded to the virus with um, complete shutdowns. And so now that Europe has reopened a lot, still, uh, a lot of co uh, countries are still suffering from the shutdowns. Um, and I would say that the countries that are, have really suffered um, have been those exact countries that were just getting back on their feet after the last crisis, the Eurozone crisis, um, you know, about a decade ago. And, and it was countries that are really reliant on tourism, for example. So that would include Italy, Greece. Spain. Um, and for Greece, for example, tourism is about 20% of GDP. So it's a huge percentage. If you have a lockdown and won't let anyone come to your country, there are big implications. Um, it's also been countries that rely more on small and medium-sized businesses in Europe that have been hit really hard because those businesses, of course, don't have access to capital markets. Um, they don't have a huge cash buffer generally. These so. smaller countries that rely on small and medium-sized businesses also happen to be the very same countries that faced a hard time in Europe's last big crisis, 
that of 2009, and have not recovered ever since. So it's these weaker countries in Europe that have been hit the hardest, and at the same time, it's those weaker countries in Europe that are hanging on to all these legacy debts from the last crisis. So they're already pretty highly indebted, particularly Greece and Italy. And so those countries that had these legacy debts um, were really reticent to rack up even more debts for fear that, you know, international creditors would think they're totally over indebted and would never be able to pay any of it back. And that could plunge them back into a new sovereign debt crisis. And so they were really more constrained in terms of how they could respond than, say, Germany, which actually had a budget surplus coming into this. So I would say that, you know, the takeaway is that the weaker countries um, that were hit the hardest in the last crisis have been hit the hardest this time around. And what about um, industries in particular? I'm, the airline industry has been making headlines as a particularly hit the sector. The next few months will be ugly for the travel industry in terms of both demand and their financial performance. Where else do you see, sort of on a sectoral level, a great deal of suffering? So anything related to retail and entertainment has been hit really hard. And that doesn't just go for Europe, that's across the, the board. But so airlines certainly travel has been hit really hard. Um, a lot of European countries, uh, Greece comes to mind, has tried really hard to allow tourists in to try to um, try to claw back some of the tourism revenues that they uh, lost at the beginning of the summer without that much luck, though, I should say. Restaurants, cinemas, um, those kinds of entertainment businesses have been hit particularly hard. What's done really well um, through this, because there have been some winners, are tech companies. And there, I would say, the biggest tech... Amazon, for example, reported a profit of $5.2 billion for the quarter, 40% higher than the same period last year. And there I would say the biggest tech companies are actually based in the U.S. So Europe's benefited much less from that. Um, and then also, and this makes sense, healthcare and pharmaceutical companies have done pretty well off the back of this, which is exactly what you'd expect in the face of a global pandemic. And there Europe does have some bigger players. And some economists have... Um, or predict that this will be the worst recession since World War II. Why is that so? I'd say it's been such a huge crisis in part because of the nature of the shock and uh, in part because of how we had to respond to it. So this all started off as a supply shock um, because it started in China and uh, most companies have these global supply chains now. So all of a sudden, if you were a Western European country and you needed a part from China, you couldn't get it in order to incorporate it into your product and sell it on to the end user. So that's how it started. It very quickly turned into a massive demand shock as, as the major economies all had to shut down in order to contain the spread of the virus. And so the demand shock has really overwhelmed everything. Um, you know, you, you couldn't go out and buy anything even if you wanted to because everyone was stuck at home. But the supply side shock still exists. And I think that as we open up slowly and, and Europe's further ahead than the US on this, in fact, um, you start to see some of those supply shocks. And that just means it's harder to buy the stuff you wanna buy um, because you know companies just haven't been able to produce it. And I would also say, you know, this has been, everything about this crisis has been driven by the virus. So as much as, as an economist, people constantly ask me, you know, what will the shape of the recovery be? How long will it take? It's much more a question for epidemiologists than it is economists. And so the initial 
policy response to this was to think, all right, this is going to be a short-lived virus. That's been the case with other viruses in the past. We'll just deep freeze the economy for two, three months maximum. And then once we've contained it, we can go ahead and defrost mm -hmm. the economy and get back to normal activity. And what we've discovered is actually this virus is much more complicated than we'd realized. There's a lot about the virus we still don't know. But despite the unknown nature of the virus and the fact that we're still waiting for the vaccine, the ways countries have managed it has made a ton of difference for the economy. I would say actually Europe's recovery is looking a lot smoother than the US's. Um, and I certainly myself did not predict that. But I think a huge piece of it ha has been virus management. So Europe has done a much better job of really kind of smashing the curve, not just bending it. And so they've been able to open up much more without a massive spike in new cases. There are some new cases coming up, um, but in the U.S. we've had a totally different experience. And, and it's not so much to do with economic policy, much more to do with virus management. And um, certainly this big stimulus package has come as a relief. Um, the Italian prime minister said that this will change the face of Italy. Like you mentioned... Um, it's it's good news for countries who don't want to borrow more, who didn't even manage to pay the, the debts of the last crisis, and, and many had to go through um, very severe austerity measures to do so. Um, guide us uh, why this deal is so momentous. Why is it making the headlines? Yeah, so this EU recovery fund that they've put together is a really historic deal. Um, it's mainly historic politically rather than macroeconomically, though. Um, the recovery fund is 750 billion euros, uh, and that is split between 390 billion euros in just grants. So that's free money. Um, and then 360 billion euros of loans, low interest loans. Um, and it's financed by the EU itself issuing debt, which, which uh, there are a few European institutions that have issued debt before, but the EU itself has never issued debt. So this is new. Those countries that get grants, it will be determined by how hit, how hard they have been hit by the crisis. So, you know, it's, it's, Touted as a one-off measure, um, Angela Merkel, Germany's chancellor, has certainly gone out of her way to, to highlight, look, this is an emergency response, it's a one-off measure. But the reality is, is that once they've set up this infrastructure, actually, it can be used in subsequent crises. Very different from the Eurozone crisis when, you know, there was real reticence to show any solidarity, and there was a whole morality tale around the Eurozone crisis, where the Northern European countries would say, well, you know, why should we be lending money to profligate countries in the South who got themselves into trouble? It was entirely their own fault, which is not actually true, but this was the narrative. I mean, we have altogether uh, been uh, constructive and very um, helpful uh, to those under pressure. But as a Christian Democrat, I say, we always know you can only uh, spend what you have earned before. You can never, nobody, no citizen, no state can at the long run spend more than you earn. Um, you know, we'll provide loans that, you know, go ahead and, and cripple them under more debt. And we've learned now, or they've learned now, that that was pretty ineffective. This time around, Partly because they've learned lessons from the last crisis and partly because this is really an external shock. You can't say this is Italy's fault or Greece's fault at all. Um, countries have come together and said, okay, fine, we're going to provide actual grants that never really have to be paid back by individual countries. 
But the portion of the money that will have to be paid back will be paid back in a very innovative way. Um, interestingly, it's also important because it will be paid back through a series of taxes. Um, so they managed to agree that they're going to implement a plastic tax, um, so a, a green initiative to pay for mm -hmm. this. And then that they'll go ahead and talk about uh, kind of carbon adjustments and a digital tax going forward. Um, and they might look at kind of emissions trading schemes and a, and a financial transactions tax further down the line to figure out how to do this. And embedded in this deal is 30% of what a country spends has to be spent on green investments. Now, this is really interesting because climate change is obviously coming down the road for us. Um, it's just so far out in terms of time frame that most policymakers haven't really focused on it. And the Europeans have gone ahead and said, you know what, we, we know we need to retool our economies for this. And so almost a third of what countries spend out of all of this has to go to green investment. I think that's really important. Also, green investment tends to create really a lot of high-wage, high-hour jobs, which are the kind of jobs that help people make ends meet. Um, and so, um, so this falls short of a Hamiltonian moment, um, partly because it does nothing to address the legacy debt. So Greece and Italy are still sitting on all the debt they were sitting on before. This just means they'll get some grants, so they won't have to rack up that much more to respond to this crisis. Right. Um, but they, they're still heavily indebted. So it, it's not that... Um, and then also uh, the EU budget was agreed, a seven-year budget at the same time, and there were some compromises made on all of that So um, that I think are unfortunate. So things like you know funding for research and development, that's been massively stripped back. Um, um, and finally, you know, 750 billion euros, it's not nothing, but I'm not sure that's big enough to be a fundamental game changer for each of these countries. And so... I do think it's partly why I say politically this is really important. Macroeconomically, right. though, I'm not sure it's a game changer. And um, on the political aspect of it, this deal was spearheaded by the German Chancellor um, Angela Merkel and the uh, French uh, President uh, Emmanuel Macron. They make an interesting duo because Germany, for a large part of its EU voting history, has been very against this large project spending um, in the name of the EU. What tipped the scale here? And why is it in their interest to align in order to push this deal? I mean, both of them are from countries that constitute the, the Nordic bloc, so they are not necessarily the ones that are the hardest hit. So that is definitely true for Germany. France is hit a lot harder, so France might contract by more than 10% this year. So... <clears throat> France has been sort of on the, the line between a stronger country and a weaker country in Europe <clears throat> since the last crisis. Um, Macron has always had a very pro-European agenda, so the fact that he's spearheading this is not shocking. Merkel was the real surprise here, and I have to confess, when, when discussions about this first started, I sort of assumed that Merkel was doing what she often has done, which is to just kind of play nice with Macron and rely on the other Northern European countries to shoot it down. Um, and it turns out that wasn't the case at all, actually. Merkel was really behind this, and I think this is a huge shift for Germany. I think that, it, it, you know, at the heart of this is Merkel realizing that it's not in Germany's best interest to have this long and protracted crisis 
in the rest of Europe. And this is particularly for Northern European countries and Germany, which are heavy, rel heavily reliant on exports for growth, less so than they were in the last crisis, but still heavily reliant on exports. If you know, you're exporting to all of these other European countries that have an economic crisis and, and can't afford to import any of your stuff anymore, you're not going to do very well. So I think Merkel finally realized that actually it's in Germany's best interest to get all these weaker countries back up on their feet. And I also think, you know, this is her last term as chancellor. I think she is thinking about her legacy, and I think she'd like this to be part of it. Yes, it is true that no one was really ready for this. It is also true that too many were not there on time when Italy needed a helping hand at the very beginning. And yes, for that, it is right that Europe as a whole offers a heartfelt apology. It's uh, uh, interesting that you highlight the, the political aspect of this deal because as the crisis um, developed in Europe and as Italy continued to suffer, there was definitely this sentiment that the EU was uh, letting Italy uh, drown and not helping out. And um, considering that the, the right-wing movement, the anti-EU sentiment of the recent years, do you think that was a driving factor in this case to show that there's a level of partnership and that uh, it's not everybody fending for themselves within the union? Yeah, so when this crisis really hit and Italy was the epicenter, there was immediate talk of export controls from France and Germany of PPE and food, which I, I found really alarming, and I know a lot of Italians did as well. The Commission stepped in and brokered a compromise so that didn't happen, but just the fact that that was on the table showed kind of the cleavages that you had. It may have been anti-European sentiment rising in some of these countries, but um, I also think that it reflects, um, the shift in politics reflects um, bigger moves. Merkel's change in view um, about how, you know, it's in Germany's best interest to actually support these countries did quite a lot to diffuse anti-EU sentiment or anti-Euro sentiment as well. And so it, initially in this crisis, Italians in particular um, felt really bitter that no one was showing them any solidarity. Um, um, I think just the fact that France and Germany were showing solidarity did a lot to diffuse anti-Euro sentiment. And so we're coming out of this with the political discourse completely changed from where it was at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, and a very contentious discourse. So th there's the, the frugal idea. But what about governments that are right-leaning, such as Hungary and Poland? Um, what concessions did the EU have to make in order to get them on board? Yeah, so this is another unfortunate concession, I think, in, in this recovery fund to do with the rule of law. Um, so Poland and Hungary have um, not been complying with legislation around the rule of law uh, in the EU. The EU's really been pretty timid in doing anything about this. And so this was an opportunity to say, look, if you want to get the money, then you're going to have to sign up to this stuff. And they ended up, in sort of typical European fashion, just coming up with a really big fudge, saying essentially the rule of law is important, but we'll work it out later. Um, another concession that was made, particularly towards Poland, was that um, you would have to hit certain emission targets um, in, in line with what the EU is trying to achieve in order to get the funding. Um, and that was loosened in order to appease Poland. 
What Megan is referring to is that Poland, Europe's most coal-dependent country, was supposed to be carbon neutral by 2050. But that is no longer the case. But I think that in terms of creating this momentous historical agreement, um, I think it was probably the right play. Um, yes, and I was wondering that you thought, well, maybe we give in, in this case, but through the plastic tax, we're going to um, have a green initiative. So maybe things kind of balance out. So maybe that that's uh, um, the math that they were doing. I don't know. The quid pro quo. And then this idea that, you know, 30% of what you get in through the budget and through grants and loans has to be spent on green investment. I think they were also thinking that might sort of offset that. But I will say, um, having kind of worked with a bunch of central banks globally on trying to figure out what role they can play with in climate change, it's really hard to kind of identify a green investment um, and to mm -hmm. sort of quantify it. And so they say 30% has to go to green investment. What is a green investment? What qualifies? You know, how much does it qualify? How do you handicap that? And another thing that uh, might be tricky to measure is um, how many jobs it will create, how it will stimulate growth. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, so to get this money, each country has to put forward a plan on how um, they'll meet this 30% towards green investment target, but also on how this will support growth and jobs. Um, and like you said, you know, economic forecasting is a tricky business. They say like forecast um, early and often pretty, pretty much. So trying to figure out, you know, how, what the specific implications will be for employment and for um, the economy is, is, it's tricky and an imprecise art, I would say, over a science. Um, so it's tricky. Um, and so the Netherlands wanted to be able to say, you know, we're like, it's not fair. We can't give them money if we don't believe in, in their plan. Um, and that has been watered down, actually, so that countries have to vet it. Um, the commission is in charge, though, in voting on whether the plan's acceptable or not. And the most a country can do is say, I don't buy this. You need to look at this for another three months. And um, do you reckon that if there is no um, concrete um, showcase for how this money is creating jobs, stimulating growth, then this might backfire in giving out such huge sums in the future that the North might say, well, we tried it, didn't really work out, went through here and there, but it didn't have a real impact. And so why should we do it again? So if what you saw was countries getting huge amounts of money and um, essentially, you know, corruption coming in or misuse of funds, um, that would, I think, have real implications on whether this could be done again in the future. This time around, the hole is so big for most countries in Europe and actually across the globe to fill that I don't think it will be very difficult to take some of these grants and loans. I think that money can pretty easily be put to productive use. Um, and so I'm not worried about misappropriation. One thing I am a little bit worried about, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that this is a supply side crisis as well as a demand side crisis. And so there might be absorption problems. So if your economy is so gummed up because supply chains just aren't working at all, then even if you get money, trying to restart them um, might be really difficult. You might not be able to. And it's interesting you said that not that much money in the end. So 
in the end, France, and uh, well, France to a certain degree, Spain, Italy, etc., will need more money. So do you think that, I mean, will they end up borrowing again? So um, they'll have to borrow from somewhere. It just might not be from this mechanism. I would say that the ECB, the central bank, has also stepped in to buy up a ton of assets. Um, and also they're providing this kind of backdoor helicopter money, um, which most people don't realize. So essentially banks in, in the Eurozone can borrow from the ECB at negative rates, which means they get paid to borrow. Um, and, and the only stipulation is they have to lend it on to the real economy. Um, so they're getting paid to borrow and lend. Borrowing costs are incredibly low right now in Europe. Um, the ECB has kind of made sure of that. You have this other backdoor helicopter money. So I think that can probably bridge a lot of what these countries need to borrow. If borrowing costs go up, however, then that does become problematic. And how do you see um, the U.S. and Europe, the similarities and their divergence in their um, pursuit to revamp the economy? So um, I would say that the approach has been pretty different in the U.S. Uh, versus Europe. So in the U.S., for example... Uh, you know, the, the government doesn't really try to prevent people from being laid off. Um, instead, they've gone ahead and supported those people who have been laid off with more unemployment insurance. In Europe, for the most part, uh, countries have tried to keep some relationship between employers and workers so that unemployment doesn't soar as much. And so that when we do defrost the economy and go back to, you know, better activity at least, Those companies don't have to go ahead and search around for workers. They've already got them, so it can bring them on much more quickly. But one huge difference in the approach is that the Europeans have really embraced this opportunity to think about a little bit further down the line about how to retool the economy um, and you know, use the opportunity now to create jobs um, to address an issue that needs to be addressed anyhow, and that's, that's climate change. And so in infrastructure projects tend to create a lot of jobs and, you know, they're high wage, high hour jobs. So that it's the kind of jobs you want to be creating. And so the Europeans have already caught on to this and have embedded it in a lot of their programs where the U.S. Um, is still kind of fighting fires and hasn't thought strategically about how to deploy money so that we can better, you know, make the economy better off further down the line. So I think that's positive. And then I think there have been lessons learned about conditionality. So There really aren't many conditions stipulated for the money in this EU recovery fund. And that's very different from the last crisis when if you got a loan, you had to you know, sign up for all kinds of things. You had to sign away your firstborn child, promise to hit, not really, but you had to promise to hit all of these different <laughs> targets um, that were imposed externally for the most part. Um, and, and I think most importantly, the weaker countries felt really resentful of the stronger countries that had been at the helm of imposing these conditions. And so when it came to discussing this EU recovery fund, you know, the frugal four was really in favor of conditions. Um, and I think that, you know, we ended up without that many in large part because they learned that, you know, the, the political toxicity of that Um, is would be too much to bear in the middle of a pandemic. So I think that's been a big lesson learned too. Uh, and even in the best case scenario, conditional upon um, the discovery and the distribution of a vaccine, let's say it's the earliest it could be, let's say it's early 2021, uh, how long 
would you say, even in the best case scenario of the crisis management, will we need until Europe is back on its feet, Europe-wide, economy-wise? Um, so it depends on how you're going to measure that. I, I would measure it by the labor market. Like how long till we regain all these jobs that we lost? And I think that's going to take years. Um, and, you know, what we've seen initially is that there's been a pretty quick bounce back um, in terms of jobs lost. Uh, and so people are saying, well, that's an indication there's just this great V-shaped recovery. We, you know, put our economy on ice. We defrosted it. We'll go back to normal. Um, and that's not the case because to get the first 20% of workers back in the workforce is not that difficult. It's getting the last 20% of workers back into the workforce. That's really hard. And so I think we've had this quick bounce, um, but that from here on out, it's going to be a pretty long, hard slog. And if you look at some of the alternative data that's come out in this crisis, which we didn't really have in the last crisis, so looking at, you know, restaurant bookings and transport information um, and also pretty granular data on how people are, uh, are spending their money. Um, you see that uh, what people are spending money on across the developed world is things like white goods, like washing machines and um, landscaping, things like that. That's not where we lost all the jobs when we locked down our economies. You know, it was things like waitresses and hotel workers who lost their jobs. And so to get back to normal, I think it's going to take a really long time. And is entirely dependent on confidence. Um, and so when people feel like going out to a nightclub won't land them in the hospital, then they might go back to, to normal, so to speak. Um, we're certainly not there. I would also say that in my own experience, and this is kind of like anecdata in a way, but you know, I watched a lot more Netflix than I ever did. I used to go to the movie theaters a lot. I used to eat a lot in restaurants. Now I order in more. And even when I feel comfortable going out and doing these things again, I'm much more accustomed to staying in and using these other services. And so let's say I just don't, I you know, decide to order Netflix instead of going to the movie theater just 10% of the time from here on out. And I decide to get takeout 10% of the time instead of going out to restaurants, even after we have a vaccine. If you scale that up over the entire economy, that's a pretty big hit in activity and a pretty big dislocation in where the activity is. And so while I say, you know, going back to normal, in some ways, I don't think we're fully going back to normal. I think there will be scarring from this. There will be fundamental behavioral shifts from this. And so it doesn't mean that we're not going to go back to kind of potential growth, but it'll just be in different sectors um, and play out differently across the economy than before we had this crisis. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the dive. This is our second Economic, the first episode we ever did was Economics Focus with Jason Furman. So this is our second one and this is our first European so episode. So it's a special episode. Um, done, first one done from Europe, actually. Yeah. Uh, or or uh, half of it done from Europe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I wish I were also in Europe, but no one will take Americans these days. So. <laughs>